Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Rena Owen, an incredible actress whose Star Wars fans will know best as the Kaminoan Tan Wee in Attack of the Clones. From her humble beginnings growing up in New Zealand to first working with Tamir Morrison on Once Were Warriors, we went through so much of her incredible career. And listen on to find out what role she was initially cast to play in Star Wars Episode 2. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 78, Rena Owen. Even before Star Wars, obviously, because you're such an accomplished actress, and of course we'll talk about Once Were Warriors, but I want to start at the very beginning. Growing up, what were your inspirations? What made you want to get into acting even in the first place? I was born creative. Mm-hmm. I think there's certain qualities people like myself are born with, whether they end up being musicians or writers or actors or a gamer, you know, game creators. Creative people have a couple of qualities in common. And one of them that I was born with was hypersensitivity. Mm -hmm. I was hypersensitive. I was overly emotional. I was extremely dramatic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I had an incredibly vivid imagination. So I, you know, was creative from day one. That's how I came out. (laughs) (laughs) And very creative. And because we grew up in rural New Zealand, uh, you know, we, we, and we didn't grow up with technology in the 60s, not a lot of it anyways. We created our own fun. You know, we, we, built huts and played cowboys and Indians and hung out by the river and rode horses. And we created a lot of our own games like Bull Rush. And I had a, we had a very creative childhood, but my first kind of official introduction into performing was when I went to what we call primary school, which is little people school, which you go to when you're five. So it's not preschool. It's officially five years old. And I joined what was called the Maori Culture Club because my dad was Maori, native New Zealander, and my mum was Caucasian of European descent, of English descent. Mm -hmm. And so I joined the Maori Club and that was all about singing and dancing. And I totally loved it. And we would perform for the school. We would perform for dignitaries. We'd go out into the community. We were the little, you know, like, you know, like a lot of schools Mm -hmm. have their little school troop and go out and perform. And so I totally enjoyed then, um, you know, entertaining people. And as a result of of being in the Maori Club, um, first before I went to high school, I actually got published when I was eight years old. And once again, that's the creativity in me. There was a a contest, uh, a poetry contest for children under 10 years old. So I wrote a poem, and all I can remember it was was about raindrops because <laughs> it was in winter and there was it was raining and it was grey and gloomy and mm-hmm. I was watching the raindrops and I won, so <laughs> I won a whole five bucks, which was a lot of money in the sixties, and my poem got published. Uh-huh. But then in high school, um, as a, again as a result of being in the Maori Culture Club, uh, the principal. So I was about 15 going on to 16. He came and watched one of our performances and and I led the Maori haka, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of infamous war dance that our All Blacks do at the beginning of a rugby match. Right. Um, and he said to the head of the English department, Mr. Gaze, who directed all our annual musical, high school musicals, he said, I think you should audition that young Owen girl. I think she's got something. Uh-huh. And so I auditioned, and there I, I booked my first official stage role, which was Bloody Mary in South Pacific. Mm-hmm. And I did a really great job, and so I got promoted to the lead role of Calamity Jane and Calamity Jane the following year. But, you know, this is the importance of, of the difference a principal or a school teacher can, can make in a young person's life. It makes all the difference. He totally spotted my talents. He, he gave me an arena for it. And as a young teenager, I thought, wow, I have found my place in the world. And I loved being on stage. I loved performing. And I will never forget the buzz I got off making people laugh. It was just an extraordinary experience. And um, and so I knew then that I wanted to be an actor. And, right. and I really enjoyed writing in high school as well. Um, however, at the end of the 70s, um, 
the three things were at play. First, I think, like most places in the world, except for maybe L.A., um, you know, acting, the arts weren't considered a serious career. You know, you had to be a doctor or a teacher. or And as a woman, my career options were I could be a secretary, a teacher, or a nurse. And third, I had no role models. I didn't kind of really grow up with watching brown faces on our TV screens, you know, in our films. Of course, we do now. We see all of those various um, diversity on our screens now, but not growing up. So it wasn't like I was this kind of little native girl from the sticks, so to speak. You know, I kind of didn't really think that acting was uh, a choice for me back in those days. And so I did apply for teaching and nursing, and I got accepted for both, and I ended up going nursing. And I did train, and I qualified as a general and obstetric nurse. And uh, once I did that, I went with a few of my other Kiwi friends, and we did our great, great OE, which is overseas experience, Uh which a lot of young Kiwis do once they graduate. Because you're kind of there in the middle of nowhere, and every young New Zealander wants to go to Europe or go to London or come to America. And it's called your first OE, your first overseas experience. And I went off to London, and I did what young people did. And I had aspirations of going to med school to become a doctor. But I got caught up in in, in the nightclubs and, and the concerts uh-huh. and DJs were just coming. And so I got caught. And I was really literally like in one big, huge playground, mm-hmm. which was London in the early 80s. And that was the end of my medical career. Uh-huh. And, and I remember my father saying, it's a shame about your medical career, Um, but I enrolled in a drama school in 1985 Mm -hmm. and it was a few years later when I was in my first play um, and I had newspaper clippings and I got really great reviews and I posted those because, you know, there was was snail mail back in those days. We Mm -hmm. were still doing telegrams. I posted back these reviews to my parents and, of course, my father then, once my father thought, oh, my God, my daughter's in the newspapers. Maybe this acting thing isn't such a bad thing. Uh-huh. You know, unfortunately, you know, he he didn't live long enough to kind of see the, the peaks mm. of my careers yeah. with Once for Warriors. Uh, but I literally set out to, to become a good actor, and I, I trained part-time at the Actors Institute while working in the theatre, and it was actually my father passing away that took me back to New Zealand at the end of the 80s, uh, where I ended up getting a lot more, you know, offered a lot of work. There was a lot of opportunities for me in New Zealand, so I ended up staying there, working in theatre, uh, uh, started to work on television series, and that eventually led me. My first film was actually Rapa Nui, which was produced by Kevin Costner mm. and directed by Kevin Reynolds. That was actually my first movie. Um, but the pivotal movie came straight after that, and that was the lead role of Beth and Once Were Warriors. Right. Pivotal for me and for Timiera Morrison, of course, who went right. on to become Django Fett. Right. And, you know, a few years later, George Lucas was a fan of Warriors, Once Were Warriors, and they were shooting it down there in Sydney. And he was a casting director who tracked us down and said, hey, uh, initially they were looking at me uh, for the role of Django Fett. No, sorry, not Django Fett. <laughs> that's that's Tim Era. <laughs> oh, my God. Captain Typho. Right. And I thought, oh, wow, what a cool, cool role, you know, that I get to wear an eye patch, Padme's main security detail. And, you know, before we signed the dotted line, my agent called and said, you know, George has looked at the balance of the movie and he really feels that character needs to be a male. And I was like, damn, I, I, I can't play. I can play a lot of things, but I can't play, you know, I can't right. play a man. Right. And she said, but he still really, really wants you in the movie. And someone, and he said, there's a, and she said, there's an alien. Mm-hmm. There's an alien called Ton Wee. Uh-huh. Would, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, of yeah. course, of course. So um, timing-wise, I was actually uh, had gone to Manila to be on the jury of the Manila Film Festival. And they said, well, look, George would love to meet you mm-hmm. uh, to talk with you about Ton Wee. So it was just uncanny and obviously meant to be that my flight from Manila back 
Manila, Philippines, back to Auckland, New Zealand, stopped in Sydney. Wow. And I had a four-hour four layover. So they sent a car to me at the airport. They raced me to the Fox Studios. I met George, sat down with George. We chatted a little bit, and that was it. Wow. And then they took me back to the airport. I got on the plane and went back to New Zealand for a few weeks. And not long after that, I was back on that Fox lot in uh-huh. Sydney, and contrary to popular belief, where most people think I was just the voice, right. no, I'm everything, right. and 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 all of those characters. It's why they're so real. George uses really good actors mm. who've got strong presence and really good voice and can act. And then he has us, along with Anthony Phelan, who was, uh, and of course, uh, with Ewan McGregor and Django and, and uh, Timira and Daniel Logan, mm-hmm. we act out all the scenes. And uh, so it's it's all of me walking and talking, and George was very specific about how he wanted me to sound. Right. He said, you know, these are creatures just think light and love, flowy. You know, they were good guys, the Caminos. Mm-hmm. They were good. They didn't realize they were building these clones for for the dark side. Um, and and he just he wanted my movements to kind of flow and sway. And he showed us the very detailed uh, drawing boards of what we were looking at. Mm-hmm. He had a whole big cardboard cutout of Ton Wee and a, and a head head casting of her that I, I hold in a few photos. And, um, you know, this is how much an actor does influence what's eventually on the final uh, screen because uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how much of myself I could still see in the in the character, Tonwi, especially in my walk because the Owen girls have a very specific walk with our <laughs> hips. But also because of my feminine energy, and this was not in her first drawings or the head casting, he gave me a headband and he mm-hmm. gave me um, earrings. So he, femi- you know, wow, he feminized yeah. her. Mm-hmm. And that was based on my performance because the head cast was not like that. The head cast was very androgynous. Yeah. Um, and I just had a, I had a great time. Look, I, I had a, a, I was like this big kid in this big playground and, and I enjoyed hanging out with George's children. And um, the pressure was off me as an actor because it, it, there's a wonderful freedom that comes when you know they're not going to see you. Right. So it's nothing about what you look like or your makeup or your hair or your figure. It's total imagination yeah. and creativity. And I just loved it. And yeah. I, I had a ball and... And I think the other thing that was in my favor, it was the naivete of the world I had entered. I had no idea, <laughs> no idea. It, it wasn't till many years later when I went to my, till I went to the premiere here in Hollywood at the Chinese Man, mm-hmm. and I went to my first uh, comic book convention, right. Dallas, Texas. Oh, that's where I, that's where I live. <laughs> that's great. There you go. Yeah. And it wasn't until then that I went, oh my God. Star Wars is a religion. Yeah. And I had no idea when I did episode two. And and I'm actually really pleased I didn't know um, because George loved the way I just treated him real ordinary. Right. You know, and I and I've, I have found this in my experience that people who do extraordinary things love being ordinary. You know, when people allow them just to be ordinary instead of kind of putting them on, constantly putting them on the pedestal as whatever the genius or whatever, because they are, but they have a real need. You know, people who do extraordinary things have a need to be ordinary. And and I just treated him ordinary. Um, you know, I'd ask him, bro, what are you having for breakfast, George? And he liked that. He just, he liked yeah. that because I don't think he got many opportunities um back in America to just kind of wander around and be ordinary and um and he's very you know soft spoken mm-hmm. he's um he's a quiet director is what I call him he's yeah. quiet you know I, I remember at the time reading or hearing things that he wasn't a good director and I thought no I totally disagree he's a damn good director he mm-hmm. just doesn't make a lot of noise because <laughs> he doesn't need to. No, yeah. You know, and he, he's very specific. And I remember watching him direct that scene when Obi-Wan Kenobi first meets uh, Jango Fett. 
because, you know, I'm in that scene as Tom Weiss. I'm watching these guys acting mm-hmm. in that scene. And and I remember George coming, you know, in and, um, you know, and he said, he gave a, a really great note to Tim. He said, you know, this guy's so powerful. You can relax. Just relax. Just relax. Uh-huh. Just let it go. Just relax. <laughs> Which by relaxing and, and sitting back on the character made him even more powerful. Yeah. Really, you know, and yeah. uh, that that was George, and that's a good director to me. A good director is someone who who's very specific and can give you a good note that tweaks a performance to just get that right measure of like, okay, you know, you could see there was still a little bit of edge between the two of them, but Django Fett gave nothing away. Right. Whereas his first interpretation of it, I, if I was Obi Wan Kenobi, would be a bit suspicious because he's been a little bit defensive. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's yeah. the difference. A good director's note will will make in a in a, in a, in a, in a subtle in a performance, but but very, right. very important. So, um, I, I found him to be a really good director, and you know, I kind of once again I had really didn't fully comprehend what was happening to me this particular year of two thousand <laughs> because right. I went straight from shooting uh, Star Wars Attack of the Clone Episode 2, straight back to L.A. to work with Spielberg on wow, artificial yeah. intelligence. And right. I had these two directors back to back. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, it's kind of a look back on it and go, well, you know, yeah. when you're in it, you don't quite see or appreciate the enormity of it. I also had no idea until I was at a comic book convention and I was educated and I love this about conventions is fans yeah. educated me about these worlds. Mm-hmm. I learned so much from fans yeah. and, um, and one of them said to me, it was actually, God, I think it was at Chicago. And he said, I don't know if you know this, Miss Owen, but he said, you're one of only five actors in the world to have worked with Spielberg and Lucas. And I had no wow. idea. Wow. And so that was way back then in the two thousands. Now there's six, Mm-hmm. But I'm still the only female. Yeah, that's great. Not bad for a little girl who grew up in the no. sticks milking cows. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, I would love to to talk a little bit more, especially because you and and Mr. Morrison worked so closely on Once Were Warriors, which I'm sure was a, a completely different experience, especially the set and the shooting style uh, versus them sharing the screen in Attack of the Clones. I mean, still, Once Were Warriors is an incredible film, still as powerful as it was all those years ago. But I mean, with how quick it was shot and for the budget it was shot, it is just such an incredible work of art. And I would just be so interested to hear a little bit more about your relationship with Tim, as well as then kind of going and and working on Star Wars and and sharing that screen with him later on. Yeah, it was... Well, first, of course, the Australian crew couldn't help but make the joke, oh, Jake and Beth end up in Star Wars. (laughs) 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 Because, yeah, two totally very different worlds. Um, One, you've got first and foremost, and and I think this is my opinion, and I believe it to be true, of what sets movies apart, what makes movies good movies. And for me, it's always strength of story. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, I mean, I've watched thousands and thousands of movies, but there's only a handful I remember. And if you ask yourself and you think about what are the films, which are the ones I remember, and it's usually the films that have touched you really deeply, you know, and stirred you up emotionally or touched your heart. You you never forget those movies. Like for me as a kid, it was Born Free about Elsa the Lion being set free. Um, And it made me cry. That's the first movie that made me cry, and I never forgot it. And then in my teen years, it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, never forgot that movie because it just, I walked out of that cinema feeling quite stunned. And, you know, it it shook me literally. And I know a lot of people say that about Once Were Warriors. They'll always go, I will never forget when and where I saw that movie. And people say, like, you know, they were stunned when they walked out of it or they were like, you know, we walked out and we started arguing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's that kind of a movie. So it was a very powerful story and based on a a novel written by Alan Duff. And we had a fantastic screenplay um, and we had the best director who was so – 
primed and ready to direct this movie. And a little story here for anyone out there who's beginning or wants to be a filmmaker. Lee Tamahori was not an overnight success. Lee Tamahori was 20 to 25 years in the making. Mm -hmm. Here was a guy who was passionate about films, that he was reviewing films. You know, he just grew up on all those great films in the 50s and the 60s, and he just loved movies. He loved movies so much he wanted to work on movies. And he started as a driver, and then he eventually got into the sound department and was a boom operator. And then he got into, eventually worked his way into the AD department, uh, who are the assistant directors, right. who literally run the sets. And in the 80s, he would he AD'd a lot of very famous movies by Roger Donaldson, Sam Neill, Jeff Murphy, uh, all of those, uh, Vincent Moore, all of those movies that launched Kiwi Kiwi directors and Kiwi actors in the in the 80s. And the last film he first AD was Kurosawa's Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence with wow. David Bowie. Yeah. And then he went on to directing commercials. And he did that for years. And he won an enormous, he was one of the best in, in New Zealand and the Australasia, that kind of pan, pan, pan Asian Pacific Rim, you know, yeah. Asia, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and he just became an expert at being able to tell a little story in one minute. Yeah. And he, he, you know, so by the time he got to, and he did a couple of TV things, but he and he waited for the right script before he chose his film. And he would often say in interviews post the film, he said, "I could never have done what I did with Once Were Warriors, was which was make that film in 34 days wow, yeah. on 1.2 million dollars with very limited." stock because we were shooting on celluloid back in those days uh he said without all of his commercial experience so the and he's still to this day is one of the best directors i ever worked with mm -hmm. because he literally crossed every t dotted every i he shot for his editing room there was very little celluloid was left on that floor he had it totally mapped out um, uh, which was extraordinary. And because I, I kind of knew his style with his commercials and, and, you know, I knew this story kind of combined with his style, he'd stylize it. And um, I knew at the time that it had potential. And I, I remember saying to him, you know, this is really significant what we're doing. This is a really important film. And I said, I think it's going to really stir people up. He's like, oh, well, you never know. You never know till it comes out. Mm -hmm. And and I think I'll never forget the first time we got invited to watch it at Avalon Studios after its first cut. And I remember just sitting there being stunned. And I, I mean, I knew what we'd done, but I was still stunned just by the power of, of, of the movie. And that movie went on to win over 30 international awards around the world. I, you know, picked up half a dozen for acting. Yeah. Um, it made Time Magazine's uh, top ten list of one of the best films in the world. Um, the other one that made that top ten list, because yeah, Time at the end of each year, Time Magazine does their top ten list of the best best ten films from around the world. And uh, uh, our film, In Heavenly Creatures, wow, yeah. made made by Peter Jackson. Right. Uh, uh, Heavenly Creatures was number four, and Once for Warriors was number six. And, uh, you know, to this date, I still, that, that'll be kind of, you know, the albatross's wing, so to speak. I'll always be remembered for that role. Yeah. And, and people often say, you know, do, do you get sick of that? And I go, no, well, it's, it's part of the blessing. That's what mm -hmm. opened the door. And, and I said, you know, there are a lot of actors out there that give their lives to this industry and never get that hit, right. never get to break out. You know, so, um, you know, I think of John Travolta. I will always think Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. That's the first movie that made him. And that's the first movie that I saw him in. And I'll always think of that movie when I think of John Travolta. Um, you know, and, and that's true for a lot of actors. For most actors, mm -hmm. that defining film that opened the door, that gave them an audience or opened the door to greater opportunities, like Star Wars, mm -hmm. You know, people will remember those movies. Um, you know, when you think about actors you like, you'll always think of when was the first time you saw those actors. The first time you probably saw Tim Yarra Morrison was in Once Were Warriors. Yeah.
And now he's Django Fett and he's all over the clone world. Yeah. You know, and of course he popped up there in Aquaman as uh, Aquaman's father. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, "Do you know who that is? Do you know who that is?" Yeah, it was very exciting to see him pop yeah, up. It was, and and here's the thing with with Tim Tim Yera, and to this day, it, it's still one of the most amazing transformations I've ever witnessed, because you couldn't get. He is so far removed from the monster we came to love called Jake the Mus. Right. It is so not who he is. You know, Tim was is always was and always will be the nice guy. Uh-huh. You know, he was the soap opera star who always got the girl, mm-hmm. the charming good guy. And and it's interesting. I think Lee, our director, did a very clever thing because he auditioned guys that were very much like Jake the Mast, you know, big, physically big, aggressive. And then he thought, you know, he, what he, he the quality he needed was charm, because he thought, you know, if J, if Jake the Mask if he isn't lovable, we'll never get away with this movie. Right. So what he did, rather than take the six and a half foot guy and try to teach him how to act, is he took an actor who knew how to work with camera mm. and turned him into the monster. Yeah. And I'll never forget that transformation. And it was just seriously to this day, still in what I've witnessed anyway, and what I've worked with, the most amazing transformation. Uh, just extraordinary. Uh, yeah. And I never forget the process we went through of a lot of rehearsals. And then, you know, when he got the, 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 the costume and when he got his head shaved and he got the tattoos and you could just see this. Yeah. Ah, oh, it was it was extraordinary. That is, and and you know we all everyone on that film knew we were doing something important. So everyone went you know went the extra mile. I mean, we would do scenes where literally half the crew would be in tears. We did it one scene. We didn't. Lee, the director, was in tears <laughs> and came up to us and went, "Oh my God, you guys." You know, it was a really powerful movie and a, a defining movie, a seminal movie. Yes, really. and it's a, that's a great yeah, word for it. Yeah, yeah, because I'm about to do another one of those ones in New Zealand. Not a Once We're Warriors, but a film that has the potential to be a wow. seminal film in our country because it's based on a woman called Fina, which is mm-hmm. spelt W H I N A. Cooper, C-O-O-P-E-R, and I will do social media once I'm actually down there and we're up and running, but Vina Cooper was a trailblazer. She, you know, a dame. She won many awards, national and international. She she fought her whole life she spent for um, empowering Māoridom, empowering natives and getting them housing and getting them work, and she created the Māori Women's Welfare League, but she became most famous and she was in her 70s, going on to 80, when she led the New Zealand, what's called the New Zealand Land March, from the top of New Zealand down to the bottom of the country to Parliament to get Maori land back, wow. to get Native land back. And that land march happened in 1975. And I have the exceptional honour of portraying Fina from wow. 70 to 90. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they have a younger, very good actress who will play Fina from 30, in her 30s, 40s and 50s. And then I come in, I come in when, and no pressure on me, but the <laughs> scenes I have, <laughs> no pressure, the scenes I have are the ones that all got recorded and are most known by public because mm. it was the landmark. It was her speeches. Wow. So, um yeah, that's what I'm about to, that's, you know. That's so on. exciting. Yeah. It is exciting. And and I'm about to get on a plane this Saturday to to fly home to do this movie. And and I'm lucky. I'm lucky that yeah. I'm I'm going to get to get back to work and and on an amazing uh project. And yeah. uh you know, cuz New Zealand has gone back to work. Avatar's gone back to work. Right. Uh TV shows have gone back to work. Um, you know, and upon my arrival, I will go, be going two weeks into quarantine. Yeah. Uh, designated because initially it was like people could go, you know, go home to their own homes or families for the two weeks in self quarantine, but people weren't self quarantining. So the numbers were going up and not going down. And so new cases have literally been brought in by people who come in. 
Um, and so now it's enforced that you are put wherever they put you for two weeks and you wow. can't see anybody. Um, last week, there were four people who broke out of quarantine. Oh, wow. I know. Different hotels. People broke windows. People climbed over oh walls. Um, yeah, so it's, it's uh, yeah, some people are having a really Jeez. hard time with it. I, yeah, that's wild. Uh well, yeah. uh, you stay safe when you're over there, but I mean, out of all places, I'm sure that's that's one of the safer places t- to be right now. So yeah, 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 it is. You know, and and back to the work front after Fina, we still don't yeah. know if um, Siren, you know, the TV series, right. the Freeform Disney TV series, I've been doing. We still don't officially know if we'll be going to season four, right. and I think the delay with that announcement is people are still figuring out whether they can shoot shows or not yeah. shoot shows. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, so if if it does happen, then after the movie in New Zealand, I'll be more than likely going back to Vancouver if we go mm. to season four. It's a, it's a hard one because Canada's border is still closed and mm-hmm. production here and production in Canada is just trying to figure out how do we actually safely go back to production. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. I really don't know where the uh, the film industry is. How I mean, hopefully it all works out, but it is just kind of a weird, tough time right now. I, I am glad you brought up Siren. Siren and your guest starring on The Orville and even Longmire, it is wonderful to see you in genre and sci-fi and thriller roles just because it is your your acting and your style is so welcome on on the screen i'd love to talk just a little bit about your experiences even let's say on the orville which is just your experiences and and, and how much you've enjoyed them absolutely yeah. absolutely and i'll just and and it's a really good point and i'll i'll backtrack mm-hmm. a little because just for your listeners <laughs> and uh, you'll appreciate this when i first came to la you know it, post once were warriors um they never quite knew where to place me you know they'd drink my agent and go gosh she's a really good actor but what is she <laughs> because in the 90s it was still quite boxed mm-hmm. you know you were either in the asian box or the latina box or the black box and and i'm kind of none of those things i'm i'm kind of what you call ethnically ambiguous and Here's a great example. Cliff Curtis, who played Uncle Bully in Once Were Warriors, he found a niche because he looked Middle Eastern. And so he got cast in a lot of those middle those kind of roles because he had the look that passed for that and also passed for Mexican. Me and Tim Yera didn't have that look. We couldn't pass for Mexican or for, for the Middle Eastern roles. And so what we got cast in was the, the futuristic stuff, the sci-fi stuff, uh, the horror stuff, because we were deemed, if, if you look at George Lucas, yeah. he cast five Polynesians mm-hmm. in episode two. Myself, Timura, uh, uh Daniel Logan, who's like myself, part Maori, right. uh, and Jay Lagaya, mm-hmm. who played my, my role, Captain Taifa, yeah. who's Samoan, and a Bodhi, yeah. who was the clone. Mm-hmm. That's five policies. Yeah. So to George, our faces were the face of the future. Mm-hmm. Matrix did that. Matrix uh, cast Julian Arahanga, who played my older son mm-hmm. in Once Were Warriors, because they saw his face as the face of his future. So I found a kind of niche there, uh-huh. you know, in the, that kind of world where uh, I could kind of be anything. And, um, I mean, even in my time in L.A., in and out of L.A., I saw the first Asian to become, uh, you know, a, a studio, a lead in a studio film, and that was Lucy Liu in Charlie's Angels. Right. I, wit- I witnessed J-Lo to become the first Latina box office girl. So I witnessed all of those things. And, and of course, in this last uh, five, ten years, all of that, those boxes have come crumbling down because the reality is we're all kind of mixed in this world. We've all got a little, even if it's strictly Caucasian, you could be English, Welsh, Irish, and, and Russian, and, and, you know, you you have all these different ancestors. And so um, it's a really great time for me now in terms of casting in the Orville and in Siren. 
because we're playing characters that are species that don't or haven't existed yet, like the Orville. Very important listen, uh, listen to any young actors out there listening to this. Is I first got sent the pilot. They were interested me in me for the Doctor, uh-huh. and I kind of read it, and I said to my agent, I said, I'm not really right for that role. And he said, yeah, but they really want to see you. So I went in, I did a good audition, and I didn't get the part. And the actress who was cast is perfect for the Doctor. She's perfect, beautiful, just spot-on casting. But episode three, they thought, aha, we got the perfect actress for Hevina, who was the first female Mocklin. Mm-hmm. Because I'd gone in and auditioned for the pilot, I wasn't right for the doctor, but I'd made an impression and they thought, oh, I think she might be spot on for Havina. So they sent, uh, you know, sent me the episode and the agent said, read it and see if you want to go in. And it was literally one monologue in that courtroom scene. Mm -hmm. And it was such a wonderful monologue and the premise of this character But the whole premise of the show, because I think we all know now with Seth MacFarlane, who I put in the same realm as a George Lucas and a Steven Spielberg, because he is, he's he's a consummate creator, Seth MacFarlane. I don't know how he does it. I mean, he's doing Family Guy and writing and producing and doing all the voices and writing and producing and directing and playing the lead and the author. And and putting pumping out CDs and he he's just there's so many things he's doing he's he's a genius yeah. and um and anyway you could see you know because the show obviously hadn't come out but you could see in the script like most great things including Star Wars I'll come remind me to come back to that that on the surface was this kind of light hearted entertainment but the underbelly is a social commentary. Yeah. And that's what Star Wars is. If you look at what the world that George Lucas created, he tapped into the good old-fashioned biblical story, good versus evil. That's what he tapped into. Are you going to choose to go to the good side or are you going to choose to go to the dark side? And he said it in a realm, a fictitious realm like the Orville, that's new and different and futuristic. But the thing that everyone latched on to and will time and time again in any film and TV series is that thing that speaks to the human condition. When it's about a very basic fundamental need we have as a species. This is what, once again, going right back to the nuts and bolts of story and the strength of story. And if it resonates with people and it does it in a safe way in an imaginary world, because I know the things that turn me off and a lot of other people off is if we feel like we're listening to a soapbox, but take us into a realm where we can maybe understand something from a safe distance that doesn't confront us too much, like Star Wars, Mm. like the Orville, then you've got this winning formula. Really, I think you hit the nail on the head, especially with what makes Star Wars so poignant now and, and so long-lasting. I mean, we're talking about movies that were filmed in, in 2000, 20 years ago, uh, that are still just as timely as ever. And, and one of the things, to end it, really, your your role in Revenge of the Sith, which we haven't really touched on, but it is, again, that political aspect of Star Wars that makes it feel like an important story, which was your role as a senator, and that was the formation of the rebellion. I'd love to talk just a little bit about that. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And that that's the thing about visionaries. They're doing, like all visionaries in our human history, you know, they were doing things long before things even became popular. You, you know, sometimes, you know, unfortunately, the greats were never revered in their lifetime. Sometimes it was centuries later that people finally go, oh, my God, that was genius. You know, and that's just the way it is. And they tap into something that is timeless because it's it's the human condition is timeless. And our basic fundamental needs to be loved, to breathe, to to be wanted, um, to belong, these are all fundamental human needs. And you tap into those. 
you know, and we still to this day on a personal level, political level and a community level, we're always being confronted. Do we choose to go to the good side or the dark side? Are we going to choose the goodie or are we going to choose the baddie, you know, or are we going to be the one in between? It's a constant question humanity is asked, and that's why it's always timeless. And absolutely, you look, and at the time, dare I say this, those episodes weren't appreciated. Like, they're appreciated more now because people have more foresight into them or vision into them. But at the time, oh, they got a lot of flack. Oh, yeah. You know, I bet I bet Jar Jar Binks is going to make a comeback, and people are going to fall in love with oh, Jar yeah. Jar Binks. <laughs> I mean, to give away my age, but I was ten years old when Attack of the Clones came out, and I was seven when Phantom Menace. I was Jar Jar Binks for Halloween. You know, like so. So the people that grew up with those <laughs> movies, though, like now, are thirty years old and are making you know actual decisions and and living their life how those movies kind of impacted them and so i really do think that the prequels are finally getting not only because of the content in them but also how they were made impacted how movies are made now right incredibly so and and so the long-lasting effects of these movies are going to be very long-lasting absolutely absolutely you know and and episode three here was the thing with episode three Revenge of the Sith is if George likes you and you do good work, you become part of the family. And so you get invited back. And uh, so when he was casting in episode three, they found a role for me. And I was thrilled. You know, needless to say, I was thrilled that I got an opportunity to go back. I'll come back to something, though, the difference between two and three. But anyway, I went here. I did, you know, they flew me down to Sydney because I was in L.A. at the time. They flew me to Sydney. And I, I read the script because they don't give you the script till you get there. I read the script and I thought, damn, the first scenes to because it was a three, it was a long mm-hmm. script. And I thought the first things to get cut out of this script, this film, will be all of these new senators mm-hmm. yeah. because they weren't intrinsic to the plot. And when you streamline people out there, story writers, filmmakers, gamers. When you streamline your story, the stuff that remains is the stuff that feeds into this, the plot, which was this in this case, Anakin going to the dark side. So, you know, what Padme was doing back at the ranch, so <laughs> to speak, with the council and all her new senators wasn't intrinsic right. to that which is where you can afford to cut it. And every filmmaker and television series will always shoot more than they need. And when they sit in the editing room, they have to decide, okay, what do we need to tell the story? We need that moment. We need this scene, that dialogue to advance the story. So I kind of knew that because I'm a writer and just being around as an actor for a while, you just know you can see these things. And I thought, damn, we'll probably get sacrificed. And we Mm. did. But, you know, we had these wonderful scenes with Palpatine yeah. and Padme. And um, and we had a nice mix of new senators. It was myself, uh, an Aboriginal actor from Australia and an Asian actor from Australia. And, uh, you know, we made for a really interesting uh, combo. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we got to do our scenes. But, yeah, ultimately, the only thing, we're a blink now on the landing pad when he returns, when, when Obi-Wan, when they land and you really don't really see us unless you know, unless you know we're there. But I had the experience and I was there for, and it was very flattering because I was there for a whole month. And even when I read the script, I thought, Oh, I'm, you know, they could have done local hire. It wouldn't have cost them as much to do local hire and hire a local actress. Uh, for the size of the role, whereas with me they had to fly me in and accommodate me in a, and I must say in a beautiful right. hotel uh, there on the you know by the opera house and they take very good care of people and uh, but that's what you do when you're family you become part of that family. Um, the only thing that I will say say that it spoiled the experience for me is I was now self conscious mm. now that I was very too aware of the world I right. was in. Yeah, You know, because as I said to you earlier, that episode two, I I didn't take stock. I had kind of no idea or concept. I just had Mm -hmm. fun and I played. This time around, I was very, very aware of of the magnitude of Star Wars. And in fact, but not to the degree where 
I, you know, I wished I had of. There were a few opportunities where I wished I'd had the courage to pull out my camera and say, can I right. have a photo? And one of those moments would be I was sitting in the room. I just arrived and I was sitting in, in the production office waiting to go in for my wardrobe fitting. And I just felt this presence walk in. And I thought, oh, my God, who's this? And I turn around and I look up and there's this giant tall man. And the recept receptionist says, oh, hello, Mr. Lee. Wow. It was Christopher yeah, Lee. Wow. And he looked down at me and said, hello, love. And I said, hello, Gov. <laughs> you know, he's one. There's a few people I've had the privilege of breathing, you know, yeah. and being in the same space with that I, I regret that I didn't have. You know, and I hope I'm always like that. Yeah. I, I hope I'm always never too busy for my own good or too above myself to not take that moment and turn back. And say, yeah, of course you can. Yeah, it's, it's a really because you know you're not always in good moods, right? And sometimes you're like, oh damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it goes back to to what we talked about earlier. It's part of the privileged position, you know. It is very much part of the privileged position, and I am in a privileged position. Well, I mean, your your roles, both Star Wars and not, have been incredible, and and I mean. Really, the now with with Tamir Morrison potentially coming back for Mandalorian, uh, Daniel Logan doing voiceover, uh, and and coming back a little bit as well. It would be incredible to see you back in the Star Wars universe, and and so we'll we'll hope for that one day. And um, but until then, thank you so much for coming on and the stories. Oh, you're so welcome. Here's what I want you to hope for, because as much as we all love Tom Wee, uh -huh. I personally, Renna, would love to come back in a character where you see me. Uh -huh. I really would love that. Yeah. And I'm going to say this. My fellow countryman is co-writing and directing the next Star Wars. Right, Taika. So, yes, exactly. Taika Waititi is uh, writing, co-writing, and will be directing the next Star Wars. And I don't often do this, but, you know, as I'm getting older and I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to say, right. I want to be in Star Wars. Right. I would love to be in Star Wars as a totally different character who you see. Right. And if there's a career, you know, I've pretty much done most of what I've set out to do. But if there's one ambition I still hold, still have, would be to be in another franchise, would be to be in a Marvel comic, yeah. or to be a Lady M and a James Bond, oh, yeah. or to be in a new Star Wars. You know, I would love to do, and I, I'm kind of ready now for that phase in my career. And I'm going to share this because I think it's really important, especially for young women out there. You know, it, it's not always easy as a woman as you get older. And I re remember in my 40s, it was a bit of a desert and, and, and opportunities were slim because you're a little too old to play the love interest or the young sweetheart. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're too young to play the old sage or the, the, the wise grandmother. And my mother would always say, just remember, girl, Dame Judi Dench and Dame Helen Mirren didn't get their big Hollywood breaks till they were in their 50s. Wow. And here I am, finally, in my 50s, getting my Hollywood breaks. Mm -hmm. It's true. Hang in there. Keep working on your skill. Keep honing your craft. And if you're a good actor, and that's what resonates now in the roles I'm getting cast in, like in The Orville, like in The like in Longmire, like in, in Siren, I bring, there's a realness I bring to these Definitely. characters and there's a depth of emotion. And I, I'd like to just end with saying this because I think it speaks to our youth out there and what our youth want now. Um, at our first upfronts for Siren, the boss of one of our big bosses at Freeform, uh, she said, oh, you're my daughter's, Helen is, my daughter's favorite character, which surprised me because her daughter would have been about 13, 12, 13. And from my experience, you know, young people don't not really interested in old people. But I said to this young 13-year-old, I just said, why? Why is Helen Hawkins your favorite character? And she just said three words, because she's real. That's what our 
young people are wanting out there, peeps. So write those stories. Bring realness to them. And that's kind of representative of the world we're, li- we're living in, where our youth, our young people who are our future leaders, they are looking to bring a kind of realness into our world. And, and many, I mean, we've seen it happen, oh, God, so much, right. you know, this everything getting shook up. So, you know, just the only other thing I want to say to your listeners is just be you, be the best you, uh, because no one can be. There's never anyone like you, and there's never been anyone like you. So what's unique is you. So just be you, bring your voice into whatever you do. Create, creative-wise, whether it's writing or poetry or, or being a gamer or mm-hmm. creating games or writing comic books, write that story or tell that story only you can tell. And that's where your success lies. And I think that's a theme right back to Star Wars. I'm sure Yoda taught that one of just be you, you know, be me. You know, it, it, that's that's the key. Just just be you and trust. George Lucas actually has said this multiple times. He says, just trust that in a voice because you're going to have a lot of critics. You're going to have a lot of people say you're effing crazy or you can't do this. I mean, imagine what would have happened if George Lucas had listened to the critics. (laughs) We wouldn't have Star Wars. He listened and he trusted his inner voice. So it's not always easy. But that's what you got to do to succeed and tell your stories. I love it. And be your unique and original self. And, um, hey, great great to talk with you, and I hope one day great we get to, to do to it you. again and talk yes. about that big franchise I'm in. And, and yeah, talk to you about the your starring role in the Taika Waititi Star Wars movie. I can't wait. Uh, Miss <laughs> Owen, thank you so much. Stay safe. Uh, we'll talk soon. You're so welcome. Stay well, everyone. I just want to thank Miss Owen again for her time and stories. It really made a prequel fan like myself just so excited to get to talk to Tom Lee for an hour. Before you exit this episode, if you could go to the app where you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating or review right now, it is so, so appreciated. Next Wednesday is a really rare interview with an Academy Award winner and ILM visual effects legend, Bruce Nicholson. So stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you.